KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, September 20th. Allegations of abuse at Francis Parker School. We'll have more on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. An eight-year-old was hospitalized last week after coming down with a rare disease triggered by coronavirus infections. Cases of multi-system inflammatory syndrome started popping up in kids early on in the pandemic. So far, some 600 cases have been reported statewide, at least 80 of which have been here in San Diego. It causes inflammation of the heart, and while rare, it can be deadly. Dr. Adriana Tremlay is an infectious disease specialist at Rady Children's Hospital, where where eight-year-old Eduardo Cortez has been for nearly a week. For Eduardo specifically, he did have a little bit of decrease in the function of his heart um, there in the middle of his care, but that has improved. Eduardo is doing well and could leave the hospital by early this week. San Diego County health officials reported more than 300 new coronavirus cases on Sunday and no new deaths. Since March of this year, 96% of all COVID-19 hospitalizations and 89% of all COVID-related deaths have been among the unvaccinated. That's according to a report released last Wednesday from the County Health and Human Services Agency. The unemployment rate in San Diego County fell to 6.6 in July. That's revised from 6.9 percent. San Diego is doing a little bit better than the statewide average of 7.5 percent. Either way, it's been a significant improvement since this time last year when unemployment in the county was at 10.8 percent. This is according to data released on Friday by the Employment Development Department. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. There are allegations of sexual abuse at an exclusive San Diego private school. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez explains that the alleged abuse happened a few years ago and why it's now recently been taken to court. Grace Wynn is finally telling her heartbreaking story. I was 13 years old. I was molested and I was abused. And I felt that there was no safe place at Francis Parker. Speak out. Wynn attended the prestigious Francis Parker School in Linda Vista from kindergarten to 12th grade. She graduated in 2019, delivering the commencement speech. What she was not ready to talk about at that time was her experience with Miguel Sembrano, who was a history teacher and a basketball coach for two years at the school starting in 2013 when he first met Grace. After school, he would tutor her uh, in the classroom by themselves rubbed her thighs, grabbed her butt, and did inappropriate things that should never happen to a child. Attorneys for the Wynn family have filed a lawsuit against the Parker School, claiming negligent supervision and a breach of mandatory duty. 
The family claims school officials were aware of Sembrano's inappropriate behavior and did nothing about it. The lawsuit claims the school did finally terminate the teacher, but did not report the incident to child welfare or any students or parents. After being fired here at the Francis Parker School in 2015, Miguel Sembrano found one last teaching job for a short time at another local school. In 2016, he killed himself. His death closed any potential investigation by law enforcement. KPBS received this statement from the Parker School Council, attorney David G. Molinari. He says Francis Parker School denies the allegations contained in the lawsuit. And at this point in the process, it is important to realize that is all we have, allegations. We will put our faith in the judicial system and judicial process, as opposed to litigating on social media or outside the legal system. Francis Parker School takes all alleged incidents very seriously. I want the school to learn and I want the school to be better. I want them to be better and do better, and I want them to finally put students first. Grace says she started college last year as part of her healing process. And that reporting from KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. It's been three and a half years since the ACLU first filed a lawsuit in San Diego against the Trump administration over its policy of separating migrant families at the U.S.-Mexico border. Now the federal government is intensifying its push to reunite parents and children with a new program launched this week. KQED's Michelle Wiley reports. The streamlined process is designed to bring parents back to the U.S. to reunite with children who were taken from them during the Trump presidency. Families can now apply through an online portal. If they meet the qualifications, they'll be referred to the International Organization for Migration, an affiliate of the U.N., which will help them apply for humanitarian parole and handle travel arrangements. ACLU attorney Legal Alert says this new system should ease the process for family members outside the U.S. Everything from allowing the family to get passports more easily, to get to the U.S. Embassy, to get travel documents, to make plane reservations, but also simply to get them from one place to another. Families will be allowed to live here legally for three years and will get help applying for work authorization and support services like counseling. Galern estimates that between 1,000 and 2,000 parents are still separated from their children. And that was KQED's Michelle Wiley. Mexico says it's finished vaccinating adults 18 and older in cities along the border with the United States. Leaders hope that that will lead to a full reopening of the U.S.-Mexico border. KJZZ's Kendall Blust reports from the Fronteras desk in Hermosillo. In June, Mexico introduced a campaign to vaccinate all adults in cities bordering the U.S. with the goal of ending pandemic travel restrictions that have disproportionately impacted Mexican citizens. Now officials say that effort is complete, with about 90 percent of adults in all 45 municipalities along its northern border fully vaccinated. Esto ya permite que se abra por completa La frontera. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador says border travel restrictions now in place for 18 months can be lifted, though it's unclear if that will happen when the current extension runs out. And that was KJZZ's Kendall Blust reporting from Hermosillo.
Governor Gavin Newsom will soon get a chance to make his second appointment to the California Supreme Court. That's because Associate Justice Mariano Florentino Cuellar has decided to leave the court to head up a prestigious international think tank. KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer talked to Justice Cuellar and has this report. Cuellar, who goes by the name Tino, is leaving the bench to become president of the Carnegie International Endowment for Peace. Before joining the Supreme Court seven years ago, he taught international relations at Stanford. Cuellar, who was born in Mexico, says all that experience will guide him in his new job at the Carnegie Endowment. Everything that happens here in California, whether it's the work of our court or the work of a governor trying to figure out how to prioritize scarce budget dollars, it happens in a global context. Cuellar was named to the California Supreme Court by then-Governor Jerry Brown in 2014. He says serving there has been a privilege and a job he loves, but found this new opportunity too appealing to pass up. He leaves the court at the end of October. And that was KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer. Coming up, in the depths of a basement of a library on the Cal State San Marcos campus lies an archive rich with the history of San Diego's craft brew industry, the Brew Cive. No, really, it's called that. Brewing Archive, Brew Cive. We have that story next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. In the basement of the Kellogg Library at Cal State San Marcos sits a treasure trove of San Diego beer history. It's known as the Brew Cive, and it's dedicated to San Diego's brewing industry. As KPBS's Alexander Wynn tells us, San Diego brewing history runs deep. Growlers, this is box 21, so that gives you an idea of how many boxes of growlers I have. Meet Judith Downey. I am the History and Special Collections Librarian at Cal State San Marcos. She's also the curator of the Brewcive, an archive of the vibrant San Diego brewing scene, from homebrewers to established names dating back to the late 1800s. People are always interested when they meet her. They'll say, oh, you're the beer historian. And, you know, they're always fascinated. I always try to have some kind of little hidden gem of knowledge that, you know, either busts a myth or corrects a misperception. One of the most popular misconceptions about San Diego's brewing industry is that it started in the 1980s. But it all started in 1868 with Christian Dupler's San Diego Brewing Company. It might have been a little bit earlier, but that's the first evidence I can find, the first firm date I can find. As Downey walks around the collection, showing off things that she's collected or people have donated to the archive. I've got a variety of styles, like with um, Ballast Point, I've got an early clear glass growler. You can sense how much she loves her work. And I keep saying I. This is the, the CSUSM collection, but I feel so invested in this because it's such a passion for me that... I always say, I, my collection, and it's really not. The collection has pint glasses adorned with logos and artworks from various brewers. Some have gone out of business. Others show the evolution of their logos. There are also coasters, growlers, beer recipes, and posters. 
and the collection keeps on growing. That's about it for this room. We do have another room down on the other end of the building. The idea for the brew hive started as early as 2015, around the time when Cal State San Marcos was starting its beer making certificate program, dubbed Ingebeering. It was the brainchild of Jennifer Fabi. She's the dean of the university library. As the San Diego craft beer scene exploded into a billion dollar industry, Fabi thought it was a good idea to preserve that history. As it turns out, nobody in town was. We knew that in order to do that, we would need some resources. And we wanted to make sure that we had a collection that was very exciting to both the public and also to those internal to the university. Fabi formed an advisory group comprised of local brewers and a filmmaker who's done documentary on San Diego brewing to see what the archive should collect. It was the advisory group that came up with the name. First, we called it the Barchive because, of course, that rhymes with archive. But those people on the advisory committee, they said that that won't do. Brewchive is better. The Brewchive also benefited because a lot of brewers are passionate about their beers. So they collect a lot of memorabilia, such as Greg Cook, the founder of Stone Brewing. He donated more than 600 bankers boxes full of stuff to the archive. I collected a lot of stuff from Stone history along the way. And by a lot of stuff, I mean a lot of stuff, as well as from other craft breweries and places I've been, etc., etc. And I had just been collecting this in a spare room in my house, and it was overwhelmed. It was packed. I had so much stuff. So when he was approached by the Brewchive, he jumped at the idea. He called it a symbiotic relationship. The Brewchive gets to preserve the collection, and he gets it out of the house. It's the largest donation to the Brewchive to date. Though Downey says the collection is on permanent loan from Cook. While the majority of the Brewchive is dedicated to what Downey calls the third wave of San Diego brewing, the period from 1987 into 2020, she is now working on the fourth wave, the post-pandemic period. Downey is also working on preserving the history of women's involvement in the brewing industry. Because women's history is still not well represented. And that reporting from KPBS's Alexander Wynn. The Brewchive is actively accepting memorabilia donations. Contact the University Archives Special Collections at Cal State San Marcos if you have a piece of San Diego beer history you'd like to donate. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.